We are going to be resuming our series in First and Second Peter. We're going to be starting in Second Peter now. Uh, and so before we begin, I want to give a little bit of context to this letter so we understand the details. This is written about three or four years after the first letter, after First Peter, but it's written to the exact same group of believers. We see that in what we've designated chapter 3. Chapter 3, 1, he says, So I write to you a second time. And so Peter is writing to the same group that he did in his first letter three or four years later, and the aim of this letter has switched just a little bit. So first Peter could kind of be broadly summarized as writing to a group of believers about external threats, right? The persecution of the Roman Empire, the persecution of the, the other citizens of the land. Second Peter is written about internal threats. So same group of people, same idea of threats facing the church, but now switching where those threats are coming from. So you see a continuation of ideas in 2 Peter. We'll see, just like we saw in 1 Peter, a remember what you know to be true. Hey, let me remind you of these things. You know this is truth. Let me refocus you on that truth. We'll see a continuation of the theme of grow in your Christian character, grow to be more like Jesus. This is how you are to be sanctified by this process. And then specifically, we'll see some new details on recognizing and defending against heresy. And so this is the second letter Peter's writing to this group of believers. These are the themes, this is the context, still very similar setting in terms of time. Uh, but I want to make sure that we have that understanding as we go in, because what we'll see is that really sets the tone for every aspect of this letter. So if you will, please stand with me as we read 2 Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, out of respect for the Word of God. And this is the ESV. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have adopted us, that we are your children, that we have a right to call you Father. Thank you that you go before us, that you are with us, It is such a blessing to know you and to be in your family. Lord, as we continue to worship and engaging with your word, would you teach us? Jesus promised the disciples that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches. And so, God, we, we need that to happen this morning. We need you to teach us. We submit to your teaching. We want to know you. We want to be like Jesus. We want Jesus to be known. May you be glorified in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I said context matters. And the idea of dealing with false teachers matters. Because what do we see that, that Peter starts this letter with? Let me reread, and just in case you guys are ever tempted to, I know sometimes when I'm reading through the letters in the Bible, uh, so the, the beginning, kind of the first two or three verses, especially in the New Testament, which are a lot of letters, they're the greeting. 
And then the end, you know, the last two or three verses, that's the benediction, that's the closing. And I think a lot of times we tend to skip over those or at least read through them very quickly because you see a lot of the same themes. You actually see where he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That was how he started 1 Peter. And if you look at Ephesians, if you look at Philippians, if you look at Colossians, a lot of the letters start the same way. This was a very common greeting for the church. And so I think a lot of times as we're studying scripture, we tend to gloss over the first two or three verses and the last two or three verses because we're like, yeah, that's, that's just kind of the hello, the welcome, the introduction, and the goodbye, I'll see you later. But I want to remind us that we need to pause and really chew on every word of Scripture because it's there for a reason. And so even in this very short introduction, we see incredibly impactful lessons, starting with verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And every part of that is incredibly impactful for both the church back then, believers back then, and for us today. And that first word, obtained, it's a word that means attaining by divine will, not by human effort, not by merit. He's saying, look, you obtained this by divine will, not because you were good enough, not because you worked hard enough, not by some combination of that factor, but because of divine will. And we see this in Scripture time and time again. This is Ephesians 2. Verses 4 and 5, and then 8 and 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." Did you catch what he said about sin there? You were dead. See, sin is not a sickness. Sin is not a disease or an illness that with a little bit of rest and a little bit of medicine, your body will recover from. <laughs> I worked for a pediatrician's office uh, before I was called into the ministry, and the joke was, don't ever let Sam talk to parents about the importance of medical care because I last went to a doctor in like 1998, um, right? But I mean, how many adults, if you wake up and you've got a cold or you've got a little bit of a fever, right? Like, I mean, be honest, adults, how frequently do we go to the doctor? We're like, no, I've been here, done that. I know what to do. Drink a little extra water, eat a little extra saltines, sleep a little bit. I'll get over this, right? I will recover from this if I just rest and slow down for a second. See, the problem is when we think of sin like that. The problem is when we reduce sin to a sickness. Friends, we were dead. You're not coming back from it. You're not recovering on your own. We were dead in our trespasses, and God made us alive. We have obtained this faith by His divine grace. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2 and 6 and 7, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you... Oh, I'm sorry. I switched 2 and 4. 
I mean, chapter 2 is a great chapter, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> chapter 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And he's talking about faith. He's talking about salvation. He's saying, look, this salvation that you have, you didn't earn it. You didn't get this through your own efforts. You didn't get this as a reward because of how good you are. So why are you boasting and acting like you did? If I handed Mike a million dollars right now, I've got a suitcase, here's a million bucks. Could he go around and tell everybody, you know how hard I worked for that million dollars? You know how great I am? I earned this through my blood, sweat, and tears. No, he didn't. It was given to him. It was placed in his hands. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, why are you guys boasting? You didn't earn this. You received it. Now, don't be down about that. That's not a bad thing. Rejoice in that. But what he's saying is you can't get arrogant in this. And Peter reminds us of it here. He says, obtained a faith. And then he goes on and he, he adds another descriptor that I think is very valuable for us today. He says, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This word equal standing, it's one word in the Greek. And it was used for when a stranger or a foreigner was granted full citizenship rights of a city. So this is not like, you know, A and B. This is, hey, you were not a part of this city. You were not born here. But we are granting you full citizenship rights. You have equal standing in every way with a citizen of this city. Peter is writing to the church and he says, You have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I mean, we, okay, we're going to get very real, right? We put Christian leaders on a pedestal. We absolutely, the American church... I think in my lifetime I've observed it, is absolutely guilty of idolizing our leaders. I mean, I have friends. I, I had a friend back in Pittsburgh. Good guy. I like him. I liked hanging out with him. Was not involved in a local church. Like kind of attended, right? You know, showed up once a month type of thing but wasn't committed to it, anything like that. This same friend would spend hundreds of dollars and buy plane tickets to fly and go hear conferences of a pastor speaking. Because, well, it's, Sam, it's, you know, it's fill in the blank. And I was like, so wait a minute, you're telling me you can't bother to commit to a local church, but you're going to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars to go fly to hear some stranger speak. We idolize our leaders. And if you think we do that today, imagine the temptation to do that when you're talking about a literal apostle. Like, man, you don't understand. That's Peter. He 
walked on water. There are two people who have walked on water. Jesus and Peter. Are you kidding me? This is Peter. I'm not equal with him. I'm, you know, Christian here. And then Peter's Christian up here. And Peter says, no. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Romans 1, 11 and 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is Paul writing. The greatest missionary, the greatest church planter the world has ever seen. And Paul is like, man, I just wish I could be with you so I could be encouraged by you. That's incredible to wrap our minds around. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is talking about a hierarchy of value. A hierarchy of worth. A hierarchy of standing. Elsewhere in the Scripture, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that Elijah was a man like you and I and he prayed that it would not rain and it didn't. Why did the Holy Spirit include the phrase a man like you and I? in that passage. Because I think it's tempting for us to put Christian leadership on a pedestal. Don't get me wrong. Christian leaders should set the example. 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Hebrews, imitate your leaders. James, imitate your leaders. I mean, don't get me wrong. Leadership should set a standard. But leadership should not be worshipped. Leadership should not be viewed as this some other but then it's also tempting to go the other way and to discourage ourselves by thinking lowly of ourselves. <laughs> Poor Mike. Mike always sits up here, so he's right on my eye line. You're sitting in the back. <laughs> All right, we'll go over to Joe. Oh, but Joe, you've served as an elder too. So Mike, it's easy for Mike to say, right? Like, well, I'm not currently an elder, so I don't have as much to offer the church because I'm not Joe. Joe is currently an elder. I'm not. Who am I? And Mike gets discouraged. And it's easy for you to sit there and say, I'm not Sam. I'm not up on stage preaching every week. I'm not Matt. I'm not Danya. I'm not Jackson. I'm not up on stage leading music every week. What do I have to offer the church? I don't. I'm just the, I'm the lower class. I'm the back row person. I don't have anything to offer the church because I'm not one of those people up front. Friends, Equal standing. Equal faith. It's the same. <clears throat> it's, it's incredible. I'm so grateful that Peter reminds us of this. But when you put these two details together, what do you see? You see humility. You see humility. You didn't earn this. You didn't work hard enough to get this. It was given to you. And you're equal. You're not better than another Christian. You're not worse than another Christian. It's equal. 1 Peter 5, that we just studied. Verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I mean, consider the letter of 1 Peter that we just studied. Endure suffering in a Christ-like manner. That requires humility. Love one another earnestly in a way that stretches yourself to your fullest capacity. That requires humility. Be subject to the secular authorities who you don't like. That requires humility. Be subject to one another within the church. What else do we see in 1 Peter? Love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, church, you're going to sin against one another. Continue to love one another. That requires humility. I mean, stamped throughout 1 Peter, we see humility, humility, humility. And as he begins this letter to the same group of believers, he reminds them of humility. This must be a hallmark on the life of the church, on the life of the individual believer. And then he goes on and he gives uh, just a great one too. I mean, you talk about a powerful combo. He says, To those who have obtained an equal, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Come on. It doesn't get better than that. That word grace... It means goodwill, loving kindness, but this word is specifically, it's preeminently used of the Lord's favor. Uh, the, the one word study describes it as this, freely extended to give himself away to people because he is inclined towards them. All right, I'm sorry. We're... Really? You were just reminded that the Lord is always freely giving himself away for you because he is inclined towards you. Like, that... I don't know, I don't have anything better to say than that. Amen? Okay, you're awake. Like, seriously, think about that. You woke up this morning... And God is inclined towards you, freely giving himself away to you. On your worst day, God is inclined towards you. On your best day, God is inclined towards you. On that totally neutral day where you can't even think of what you did besides go through the motions, God is inclined towards you. That's incredible. What a privilege. What a blessing. What a rich benefit. What a rich joy. Thayer's lexicon talks about when it's, when it's used in a benediction like this, this phrase grace, it's intended to convey the desire to the readers, hey, be committed to the protecting and helping favor of God. So Peter's reminding the early church, he's reminding us, be committed to this. Be mindful of this. Don't ever lose sight of the grace of the Lord. Don't allow the enemy to whisper and deceive you and get your eyes off the grace of the Lord. 
I love it. I love that that's how he opens this letter. And then he adds, and peace, grace and peace. Again, to go back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.11, seek peace and pursue it. We did a whole sermon where we broke down this word peace, what it means, what it means to seek it, what it means to pursue it. But in summation, it's God's gift of wholeness. It's quietness. It's rest. It's ease of mind because we know that we stand before God on His judgment throne innocent in the blood of Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. That means given, unearned. So I'm at peace because I stand before the maker of heavens and earth and I know He looks at me and sees the righteousness of Jesus. My soul is at rest. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the joy of the believer, knowing this, resting in this, fully assured of this. But then it doesn't end there. Why does he use the word multiplied? Why do we think? Well, maybe because that word means something and has significance. I mean, why, right? Holy Spirit could have easily had Peter say, may you have grace and peace. May you remember grace and peace. May you be cognitively aware of grace and peace. No, he led Peter to write, may grace and peace be multiplied. This is the same word that we see throughout Acts, Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 9, Acts 12. Talking about the church, talking about the early church as it grew, as it multiplied. It's the same word that we see in 2 Corinthians 9, 10, and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So this word, multiplying, multiplication, this idea when this word is used is that yes, we receive the blessing, but then we receive the blessing so that we may reflect the blessing. See, the church was blessed and the church multiplied, and as the church received God's blessing and favor and multiplied, it was able to extend and have even more significant impact. As the sower receives God's favor and as he receives the seed multiplying, what is he able then to do? To sow more widely. He says you will receive, what's he saying? Mean, he literally says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So the grace and peace that is given to us is meant to be multiplied. We are meant to receive the grace and peace, to walk confidently in the grace and peace, to have joy and security in the grace and peace so that we can reflect this to the world that desperately needs grace and peace. This is why multiplied matters so much in that sentence. This is what we must know. And what drives this? 
humility, grace, peace, multiplying these things, reflecting these things, having an impact with these things. What drives this? Because guys, this sounds like a huge task. I, Sam, am not up for this on my own. So Peter includes the kicker to all of this. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Side note, there's a really cool detail in the Greek language here. That phrase where it says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In the Greek language, it is just one singular article before that, which grammatically means that what's following is talking about one same person. So even the Greek language reveals that God and Jesus are one, are equal. And I thought that was really fascinating. And for the other three nerds out there, you're welcome. But I love stuff like that. It's what makes studying the Bible so fun, because you come across things like that. But Peter includes us, he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. My one commentary put it this way, and I can't say it any better, so I'm going to quote it. Christianity is based in objective, historical, revealed, rational truth from God and intended to be understood and believed. The deeper and wider that knowledge of the Lord, the more grace and peace are multiplied. See, that word for knowledge, it means full knowledge. This isn't partial knowledge. It means full knowledge that comes from a personal, intimate relationship with. It's what's used to describe our walk with Christ. Then in abiding in Christ, think of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, my word abide in you. Know me. This is where humility flows from. This is where grace and peace flow from. Consider John 17, 3, Jesus speaking. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Guys, it's about you and Jesus. If you, if you give more to the church than any other person here, you are our single biggest contributor. And on top of that, you serve more than any other person in the church here. You volunteer for everything. You're the first one at everything. You give more to charities. You, I mean, you could be the most perfect church member. And if you are neglecting your personal walk with Christ, you are missing the point entirely. It's about knowing Jesus. If you hear nothing else from me in however long God has me as the pastor of this church, know Jesus. 
I could care less if you remember my name 30 years from now, but please know Jesus. I could care less if you show up to every single church function we put on if you are neglecting your relationship with Christ. Please, friends, wake up and say, Lord, today I want to pursue you with everything in me. Every moment of today, I want to be in pursuit of you. I want to know you. I want to look like you. I want to love like you. I want to live like you. I want to treasure your word. I want to jealously guard my time in prayer with you. I will cast all things aside for your sake. Please, church, be this. Give yourself for this. This is what we are called to. This is what we get the opportunity to do. This is not a burden. This is not a have to. This is a want to. This is a, I love you, Lord. I want you more than anything. May grace and peace be multiplied in knowing God and Jesus. Because if we're trying to find grace and peace anywhere outside the person of Christ, we're, we're wasting our time. We're looking in the wrong places. If we are trying to find grace and peace apart from the person of Jesus, we are beating our head against the wall. It's found in Christ and Christ alone. Peter reminds the church of this. It's absolutely as valuable for us today as it was for the church back then. Know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, may grace and peace be multiplied in our lives. So that when the storms come, when the trials come, when things get difficult, we know Jesus. And so our feet are firmly planted. And we're abiding in the vine. So that when we're tempted to say, I have nothing to offer the church... I have no part to play in the advancement of His kingdom. We're reminded, wait a minute, I abide in the vine. The Holy Spirit indwells me. I have faith of equal standing with everyone who's come before me. When we're tempted to put people on a pedestal, we're reminded, wait a minute, they have faith of equal standing with me. It's not about them, it's about Jesus. No, Jesus, church, please. Please, will we give ourselves in relentless pursuit of this? It's the only way we'll have an impact. It's the only way we'll have anything meaningful. It's the only way we'll grow as people. It's the only way we'll be sanctified. Is in pursuit of Christ. In context to this letter, why does knowing that he's writing about false teaching and heresy and heretics. Why does that matter so much, this introduction? Think about it. First Peter, the first letter that he wrote to this group of believers. Hey, you're about to go, or actually you're going through some crazy difficult external persecution. You are suffering extreme hardship and external attacks against the body. So the introduction to 1 Peter talks about and reminds the believers of God's sovereignty. 
reminds the believers of the need for sanctification, reminds the believers of the call to obedience, which fits perfectly with the tone of, it's tough for you externally. God is still in control. You're going through this for a reason, so obey. Second Peter, hey, here's how to deal with internal threats. Here's how to deal with heretics. Here's how to deal with false teachers. So church, let me remind you of humility and grace and peace. This was an especially important message this week or relevant, prescient, whatever word you want to plug in there for me to study this week. I confess this is where I am most tempted to get arrogant and angry. I've said it before, I have a way easier time forgiving an atheist than a Christian. I'm way less bothered when an atheist says something dumb about the church than when a Christian does. I, I don't expect an agnostic, I don't expect a non-believer to say something accurate and true about Scripture. So it's way easier for me to look at a non-believer who says something slanderous about the church and not get mad at them. It's hard. It's hard to engage with false teachers within the body and remain humble and full of grace and full of peace. It's hard to multiply grace and peace when dealing with internal threats. So I love that this is how Peter starts this letter because we need this reminder. There is no excuse for abandoning the character of Christ. The character of Christ, the person of Christ, is humility, is grace, is peace. And even when dealing with false teachers, even with dealing with false teachings, it is no excuse for us to abandon or disregard being people of humility, grace, and peace who seek to reflect that who love the false teacher as much as they love the one who agrees with them. We don't compromise the truth. Hands down, we don't compromise the truth. But we never toss grace out the window. We never toss humility out the window. We never toss peace out the window as our end goal. Our desire is always the wholeness of God. Reconciliation with God. Love of one another that covers over a multitude of sins. And so as we prepare to dive into 2 Peter, and we'll see chapter 2, if you've read ahead, chapter 2 is just all about calling out false teachers and false teachings, how to recognize them, what to look for. So it's going to get real, it's going to get gritty. But Peter lays the foundation of let it be done so in humility, seeking to multiply grace and peace. It's where we must be today. It's where I need to be. It's where your elders need to be. It's where you need to be. Why? Because this reflects Jesus. And that is the greatest privilege any of us have. So this week, as we consider these things, let's read Acts 11, Ephesians 2, and Philippians 1. Look for the themes, look for the ideas of this message in these three chapters. Apply the Acts model to these chapters, to these two verses. How does this lead me to praise God, to adore Him? How does this lead me to confess to God? How does this lead me to thank God? What requests, supplications does this lead me to make to God? And then for the imitate Jesus part, 
Next time you read through the Gospels, wherever you are in your own Bible reading plan, next time you read through the Gospels, make note, circle, star, underline, whatever, highlight with a certain color, make note of how often it says Jesus withdrew to be alone in prayer. Jesus withdrew to be alone with God. So for the imitate Jesus, if we are desiring to be a church of humility, grace, and peace, multiplying that, reflecting that, we must not be neglecting our time with the Lord. So if you carve out 10 minutes a day for Jesus normally, this week carve out 20. If you carve out zero, carve out five. But set time aside and say, no, this time is for God and God alone. ESPN can wait. You heard of a thing called TiVo? Record the game and watch it the next day. I can promise you, we're not going to stand before the Lord on his throne and say, man, you know what? I wish I watched more sitcoms on earth. Carve out time for the Lord and guard it fiercely so that we may be a people who know God in intimate relationship with him and therefore reflect him to this world. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, I thank you that we have obtained a faith of equal standing with these champions of the church. That is mind-blowing, Lord, that you don't see us on some sort of hierarchy. Thank you for the roles you've given us how you've placed us and assembled your bride. Thank you for your grace and peace. Lord, thank you that we can wake up knowing that you are inclined towards us, that the cross and the empty tomb is proof of this, of your favor, of your loving kindness that extends perfectly. Make us holier. Make us like Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied in this body. May we live in it and may we reflect it. Enrich us so that we may sow generously, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.